and I'll get there myself. So in Acts chapter 19, last week, Paul had actually um, been in Ephesus for about three years. And during that time, he shared Jesus in the synagogue for about three months. He always went first and foremost to the religious center that was there. And he would go, he would, he would share the testimony of Jesus, what Jesus came to do, what his death, burial, and then his resurrection had to do with them, explaining that he was the fulfillment of all that was taking place in the Old Testament. He explained to them that the law was not meant to save them, but it was meant to show them, just like a mirror, that they were flawed and that they needed something to deal with those flaws. And so they were looking into the mirror and going, look at all the things that we can do. We follow all the commandments. But you and I know if we try to live by the Ten Commandments, what it will show us is, is how much we need the Lord to be the one who gives us righteousness because we can't fulfill all of it. Even if we don't murder, even if we don't... Uh, even if we don't do some of the majors that we would consider breaking the Old Testament law, uh, we still, many of us, especially in our society, have a problem with coveting. And so uh, the problem is, is that we can't fulfill the law. And so Paul went in and he explained that to them. Look, you guys think that you are righteous in and of yourselves, but if you really considered what the law says, it says that you can't be righteous on your own. You need someone to save you, someone to to fulfill the righteousness for you. And so when he explained that to them, many there were a couple who believed, but many of them, because they were used to their religion, they did not believe, so they rejected his message. So Paul wasn't going to stick around uh, and try to teach those that were already convinced that they were doing what was right in God's eyes. And so he went to a different place. He went to a, a school by the name of the School of Tyrannus. And the school of Tyrannus was just a, it was a school in the town of, or in the city of Ephesus. And during the time from about 1 p.m. to 4 p.m., they would go into the school and he would have Bible study. And anybody that would show up, he would teach them. Um, but during that time, there was nobody there because it was the heat of the day. So they were able to use the school without having to purchase their own building. They kind of used a, a, a non-normal means to have church. We think of church, we think of a specific building or a specific order or format of service. But what Paul did was he used what was in front of him. He used that building there. And so as Paul continued there for two years teaching through the scriptures, it says there in the end of last week's passage in verse 20, that the word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed. That all those who were in Asia heard the gospel. In verse 10 it says, he continued there for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So as he continued there, not only did he teach, but God also confirmed that he was an apostle by, by actually doing miracles through Paul. And Paul was a tent maker by night, so he had sweatbands around his head and he had an apron that he would wear while he was making the cloth. And those sweatbands were the touch point that God used for many others that needed healing and demons cast out. God did unusual miracles, it says there in verse 11. God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And so Paul was used not only to teach the word, but to show the power of God for healing and for cleansing. But as usually happens, 
when God wants to do something, there are those that come alongside and try to imitate that same kind of power in order to kind of draw people away from the Lord. And what happened was there was these group of Jewish exorcists that came in and, and they said, you know what? We cast out demons too. And Paul's just, he's going in there and he's using the name of Jesus. Maybe that's the way that we should do it. And so they saw Paul was able to cast out demons. And so they said, we'll just do it the same way Paul's doing. So they walked in and they said, we cast you out in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches. But they imagined that just because Paul was using the name of Jesus, that's where his power came from. But it wasn't because he was using a specific formula. It was because Paul's life had been surrendered to following Jesus. And so it wasn't just a formula, but it was the fact that his life was submitted to following the Lord. His power came from his life being given to the Lord for his use. So these men that tried to do this the way that Paul did ended up being beaten up by those that were possessed by demons. They had no power because they had no relationship with the one that had power. And so um, in the same way, uh, these people were not able to do these miracles. So God, Paul, Paul was used by God in a mighty way. And we see in the different missionary journeys that Paul went all over the world. He traveled, he spoke, he performed miracles, and he gave basically his entire life to doing the Lord's will. But I find myself asking the question, that's great, um, but how do I do that? How do we live a life like Paul did? Many of us either have jobs, we have families that we can't just leave all the time. What do we do? How do we be used in a mighty way like Paul was without forsaking our families, without giving up our responsibilities to provide for them? Well, <clears throat> number one, we have to let go of our lives and give them completely to the Lord. That's what Paul did. First and foremost, he, he said, Lord, I need you to live through me. So I'm going to give you my life. You died in my place anyway. I want you to use my life for whatever you want to do. No strings attached. And we see this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 25, where it says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So first and foremost, give your life to the Lord. If you want to be used like Paul was, give your life to the Lord. Number two, ask the Lord, the one who created you, what did you make me to do? What is your purpose for my life? What do you have for me? How do you want to use me? And then number three is the hard one. Wait for him to answer. Wait for him to answer that question because sometimes we look at prayer and we go, Lord, I'm asking you. I'm talking to you. And he says, okay, but once you've done that, listen, because communication is a two-way street. So the Lord desires to answer that question, but sometimes we're not willing to wait. But we think of waiting and we think of, well, I'll pray about it and I won't do anything. But waiting is not something that we do just passively. We have to actively wait on the Lord for him to reveal to us what he wants to do. I think of it like this. You guys ever go to the license office? Everyone goes to the license office, whether you want to or not. I was going to tell the story because Herschel was going to be here, and he works at the license office now. But the application is the same. When you're sitting in the license office, you're there because you got a notification or because you didn't, and you got pulled over because somebody said you need to get your license renewed. But when you get there, 
there's certain things that you need to have in order to get your license renewed, get new plates, whatever it is you're there for. Get something titled. And when you get there, obviously you walk in. Many times there's a long wait. They got the thing where you pull your number out and you go, oh man, it's going to be a while. So you sit down in your chair and nowadays we have our smartphones or whatever and so we keep ourselves busy. But one of the things you can do while you're waiting at the license office is have your stuff ready. You get there, you're all frazzled, you just got out of the car. It gives you time to organize the paperwork in order to get your license renewed or to get your plates renewed or whatever you're there for. Many times people get up there, they've waited, they, they call their number, they get up to the table and they go, hey, I've got all of my stuff here. They hand it to them. And what happens? Well, you didn't bring your insurance card or you didn't bring your license to be renewed. There are certain things you have to have. You need to be prepared for when your numbers call. Well, what we can do while we're waiting in the license office is we can get that stuff ready, be prepared for when our number is called. So the, the thing that we often think is, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then we don't spend any time preparing, getting to know him, so that when he comes and says, this is what I want you to do, we're not ready. So the Lord says, actively wait. Want to know what I want you to do, but also while I'm getting ready to tell you, I want you to be preparing in that time. We see this in the life of Paul. We see this in the life of Moses. We see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't start his life. He wasn't born and then just thrust into ministry. There's 30 years we can't really account for. But when we do see him, his parents take him to the temple to worship. What is he doing? They leave, they go back home, and three days later, they get home and they're like, where's Jesus at? And so they go all the way back to Jerusalem they get to the temple and they say, Jesus, your, your mother and I were completely upset. Where have you been? And what did he say? Did you not know that I need to be about my father's business? He was in the temple. He was reasoning. He was talking about the things of the Lord. God was preparing him. And of course, they already were able to tell, there's something different about this kid. He's got wisdom and understanding. Who's he, who, who's he been learning from? He was prepared. And by the time that he comes onto the scene, he walks up to John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And then he says, John, baptize me. And John, of course, says, I can't baptize you. You need to baptize me. He says, In order to fulfill all righteousness, I need to be baptized. And so he was. But my point is, is that God is calling us. He's got purposes for us. And many times we're like, Lord, what do you want to use me for? And then when he says, this is what I got for you, we're not ready because we haven't been waiting actively, preparing for when he does call us. Paul was in a prayer meeting the day that the Lord says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. They were in the temple. They were praying with brothers and sisters. They were learning God's word. They were teaching God's word. They were already busy about the Lord's business when the Lord said, now I've got something more specific for you. And so Paul was used in a mighty way because of that. Colossians chapter three, verse 23 and 24 says this, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the reward of your inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. 
So if God hasn't showed you what he wants you to use your time to do, while you're waiting on him, do things that are obviously his will. Share your faith. Feed your family the word of God. Pray. Get together with other believers regularly. And then, when you're being obedient to his word, no matter how it looks like it's going to be as a consequence, leave the results up to him. Good, bad, or otherwise, the results are up to him. So the results of Paul trusting in the Lord and everything can be found in this chapter. Number one, God used him to do things that everyone knew that Paul couldn't do if it was just him doing it. He was able to heal people. And even in the beginning of the book of Acts, Peter was used to heal a person and everybody looked at him. Oh my gosh, did you just see what he did? And he stopped everybody. He goes, why are you staring at me as if I did something miraculous? The God of wonders, he's the one working through me. And he pointed to the Lord. Uh, Paul was doing the same thing. Everyone knew that it wasn't Paul doing these miracles. Number two, those who were not given to the authority of God to do the miracles, they were humbled because they couldn't do what Paul was doing. They were completely humbled. Number three, because of the power of God in Paul, the failure of those trying to imitate Paul without having a relationship with Jesus, because of that, fear fell upon all those that witnessed what was going on. They started throwing away their black magic books. And we looked at last week in Ephesus, it was a dark culture. They were serving other gods. They were reading tarot cards. They were getting their palms read, read. They were doing all these things that were against God's will. And so God used this to show them that those powers are real, but they're the powers of darkness. And that the powers of darkness can consume your life and take over. And so because of the power that they saw of Paul being submitted to the power of Jesus Christ, they saw that he could break the chains of darkness. And so fear fell on them, and they started burning all of their false religion books to the point of several uh, thousand uh, pieces of silver, I think is what it says. can't remember. To the value totaling in 50,000 pieces of silver. They were willing to give up what they had paid for. So... Those who were seeking wisdom and power from those things, they got rid of them. According to verse 20, the word of the Lord grew mightily and it became famous because Paul simply did what we talked about. He surrendered his life to the Lord. So in verse 21, excuse me, yeah, verse 21 we start where it says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul's already making future plans, but he's still always giving this if the Lord wills. He's saying, my plan is to eventually go to Rome if the Lord wills it. But until then, it seems that he stays busy. He wants to finish the work that God sent him to do. And so he says, it says there, when he had passed through Macedonia, verse 21, and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem. That was his desire. So Paul recognized he was one person. So he can't necessarily go to all these places, but those who he's discipling, he can send as his representatives to speak to those churches that he went and planted years ago. Verse 22 says, So he sent into Macedonia, that's where Philippi, that's where Berea and Thessalonica are. He sent there two men, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed here in Asia for a time. And about the time there arose 
a great commotion about the way. So he's still in Ephesus right here on the, uh, the west coast. You see the word Asia up there. He's still in Ephesus. And while he stays there, there's a commotion that rises up about the way. Now remember that Christianity has not always been called that. We call it Christianity because Christ is the center. To be a Christian is to be Christ-like, to be like him. But at that point, they called Christianity the way. And the Christians didn't call it that. Actually, the people that were not Christians called it the way. And so it's interesting to me because why did they call it the way? Well, we talked about it last week. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to his disciples, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's, like, it's why we call our way to Farmington Highway 221. Now, we don't call it the way because there's a road name, but that's a way to get to Farmington. And every day, if I want to come home from Farmington where I work, then I got to take the way. The way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And so the way is, in fact, that person. And no one can, it's not like going to Farmington where you can actually take the long way or the other way. There is one way, and that's through Jesus. And so they were called not a way, not one of the ways, but the way. And so there's a commotion that rises up because of the way, because of Jesus. And any commotion that's stirred up that causes um, confusion and people to get upset is, is from Jesus Christ. When they find out that he's the one way to heaven, it stirs people up. It makes them angry especially if they're not surrendered to him. So in verse 24, it says, A certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar, similar occupation and said, Men, you know that our prosperity is by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is our trade, the thing that we do for our livelihood, not only is it in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So we got a problem here. The worship of the one true and living God has become very prominent. And so not only is it affecting individual people's lives, but it's affecting the economy of Ephesus. And this silversmith, Demetrius, he steps up and he starts talking to the other silversmiths. He kind of gets the, the local silversmith union together and he goes, hey, look, my bottom line, my wallet it's not as thick as it used to be. What are we going to do about this? He goes, don't you guys know that your business is going to be thwarted? You're not going to be making as much money because of this Paul who keeps telling people that the things that we make, these little silver idols, he's telling them that they're not gods, that they're not worthy of worship, and that they can't do anything. What are we going to do about this? This is affecting how much money we take home. And so they get upset, they stir up a commotion, and they start to make a big riotous scene. And what happens is they, 
start and and they uh well, I guess I need to read and then I'll be able to tell you what happens. <laughs> he says, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. And if you start messing with people's prosperity, they get upset. But what happens is that we need to notice here, Paul hasn't been picketing at the temple of Diana. He didn't go up there and say, you guys, you guys need to stop worshiping Diana. What he's done is he's proclaimed the gospel to individual people and so many people are believing in Jesus that they don't go to the temple anymore and buy idols. They don't go to the worship services there. They don't go visit and play the arcade games that are in there. There wasn't arcade games there, but the temple was the center of their society. This is where all things would take place. And so Paul has preached the gospel and Jesus is affecting people's lives individually so drastically that they're no longer purchasing things that support the temple and the idol worship that was there. And it's affecting their economy. And so these men get upset and they start to throw a fit. And it says there that when the other silversmiths heard this, they were full of wrath. They cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And notice the result of them crying this out. Verse 29 says the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized two men, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So, Steve, would you give me the next slide, please? This is the theater that they rushed into. This was not a small group of people. This entire theater can hold about 25 thousand people. It's kind of like a view from the arch. It seems like it's hard to take it all in, but if you look down there in the center of it, those, those little dots there, those are people standing there. So this is a very large place. And the commotion is stirred up so much that the first thing that these people do when they cry out, great is Diana of Ephesians, is they all go to this theater to kind of have a quick uh, trial on those that have caused the commotion. So they all run in there and they, they don't even know why they're there. They just know that when somebody cries that out, we're all going to gather together. So in verse 30, excuse me, 29, it says the whole city was filled with confusion and they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's travel companions. So they've gathered two of the men that are with Paul, perhaps to get Paul to come there too. Kind of, hey, let's take somebody that'll get Paul to come, kind of like a ransom note. You know, hey, if you come in to this theater, then you, we'll give you your two guys back. I don't know if that's why they did it, but it says they took these two men there. And when Paul wanted to go into the temple, into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Paul's seeing this as kind of a kind of like Mars Hill a couple chapters ago. Hey, maybe I can preach the gospel when we're in this big venue. How many opportunities do you get to go into a crowd that big and say, hey, Jesus is king. Do you want to receive him? Kind of like a Billy Graham crusade. But it says that the other disciples uh, asked him not to come in there. Verse 31, then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. They knew Paul. They knew he wanted to go. 
Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly, all the people gathered there, were confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. So Alexander is standing right there in the middle. They're all confused and shouting different things. And Alexander raises his hand because that was kind of the general signal. Hey, I'm getting ready to speak. And as the crowd quiets, they then realize that Alexander is a Jew. Verse 34, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for two hours. They cried out for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. They don't want to hear him. Have you ever yelled anything for two hours? I don't know that I've ever sang worship songs to the Lord for two hours. But they are crying out for two hours this one phrase. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And I kind of take it like this. They're crying out and they're saying, you're a Jew. La, 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 la. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I don't want to hear it. Because they've noticed that all the people that have turned their lives over to this Jesus, their lives have completely changed. They don't want to be one of those Jesus freaks. They don't want to hear it. They already have their religion. I don't want to hear about your religion. Mine's right, yours isn't. And of course, all they're hearing is someone else coming along saying, no, but yours isn't, mine is. So they don't want to hear it. But what started this whole gathering? What started this whole commotion? Was it the fact that Diana and her temple were being defamed? Was it the fact that um, people were saying that Diana was wrong? No, I want to point out the thing that started this whole gathering was money. It was money. People were gathered together. They didn't even know why they were there. The people that gathered them were Demetrius and the silversmiths. They threw a fit because their bottom line was changing. They weren't making as much money. And what I want to point out is that anytime God takes over your life and he starts to take over different areas of your life, we start to cry out, Lord, but what about the days when I used to be able to do whatever I wanted? What about the days when I used to be able to just do whatever was in my heart? What, what, what about the days when I would spend my Sunday mornings and just sleep in? And anytime God gives us something to do, sometimes we realize that after we do it, that God's taking over our lives. And so internally, we start to cry out, Lord, this is my time you're taking. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. What we need to know is that we can't serve two masters. We can either serve one or the other. <clears throat> you might have heard this said before. Money is the root of all evil. You guys ever heard that? It's not biblically true, but I hear a lot of people say it. Many will say it's true and it's even in the Bible. But what the Bible really says is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because of Demetrius' love of money, he supports the worship of a false god even makes things that help others worship this false God, which in turn keeps people from worshiping the one true and living God. Luke chapter 16, verse 13 says this, No servant can serve two masters. 
Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says this, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So we could obviously look at Demetrius and go, well, he's, he's not surrendered his life to the Lord. He's all about money. That's what he worships. He doesn't worship Diana. He worships money. But the reality is, is that before we throw stones at Demetrius, we need to examine our own lives. Do we have the worship of something other than God that's going to cause us to, to betray the Lord when our real God starts to get messed up? What I mean by that is, look at Judas Iscariot, the man that betrayed Jesus Christ. Why did he betray Jesus? Do you guys know? Money. Judas betrayed Jesus because of money. And when he was offered 30 pieces of silver, he betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Now you got to understand that this wasn't really that much money. 30 pieces of silver is what they would pay to buy a slave who had been injured. Not even a good slave, a cheapo slave, a seconds slave. And so when he betrayed Jesus, he betrayed him for the price of a slave because he loved money. Actually, it says there, Judas loved money so much that one time when a woman came to Jesus and wanted to worship him, she broke open this big jar of spikenard. It was like a, a perfume. It was very expensive. It was made from something that I can't remember right now. But it was very expensive to get it. And so she wanted to anoint him with this oil and this perfume. And she broke it open and she poured it lavishly, all of it, out onto Jesus. And when she did that, there was a disciple there of Jesus, seemingly, in name only, that said, why did you do that? We could have taken that perfume, that oil, we could have sold it and taken all that money and we could have fed the poor. But in John chapter 12, verse 6, it says that he said, he said this, not because he loved the poor and wanted to help them, but because he kept the treasury for their group and he was stealing from it. He loved money. He didn't care about anybody else. <clears throat> So verse 20, I guess I got ahead of myself. Verse 28 through 34 shows us that because he stirred up this whole group because of his love of money, he gets this gathering together, this chaotic, confusing, disorganized, extremely large gathering, and they assemble together and they're all unaware of why they're even there. And when one person tried to speak, they wouldn't listen to him. They weren't gathered for the purpose of a reasonable trial. It was basically a lynch mob to stop these Christians from sharing their faith. But it says, excuse me, and I, I see this gathering much like the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that had stirred up the crowd against Jesus. When Pontius Pilate asked if they wanted him to release Barabbas the murderer or Jesus, they answered, release Barabbas. But in Mark chapter 15 verse 10, it said that they said this because there was somebody that had gathered them. See, they, they called for Jesus to be murdered, 
But they did it under false pretenses because Mark chapter 15 verse 10 says the chief priest had stirred up the crowd so that he should release Barabbas to them. So behind every mob mentality crowd, there's a leader. And many of them, whether they realize it or not, are being led by somebody that has ulterior motives. So just like the crowd who answered Pilate's question, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They cried out, crucify him, just like that. After one man began to make a defense for the faith in front of this enormous riotous crowd, they didn't let him speak. As if they were covering their ears and making that sound, like I said earlier, we don't want to hear you. So let's uh, finish up in verse 35 through 41. When the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana? Some of your translations might say Artemis. And of the image which fell down from Zeus. He's saying, hey, don't get so upset. We all know that Diana is, the, is, the, is our God. We all know that. We all know that we worship her because of this piece of rock that Zeus dropped from the heavens. And they had this rock, this meteor that fell from the sky. And the, the story in their culture was that this is our God. It came down from Zeus and then they carved it into this image. And this God, this goddess, was a goddess of fertility. And so they worshipped her in very many uh, immoral ways. And so there were things going on in the temple that we wouldn't even want to speak of in our day and age. Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, because obviously she's real, we got a rock. We got this thing that we could see and worship. It's tangible. Obviously, she's real. And this is a fly in the face to those of us that walk by faith and not by sight in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says, verse 36 since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. In other words, if they've done something wrong to you, Take them to court. We have courts for this. We don't need to get together in a way that is disorganized and kind of, you know, more than likely going to start a riot. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to an account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So he explains to them, everybody knows that Diana is real. What's the riot about? Why are we so upset? Now we know the real reason, it was over money. So let me ask you the question. Why did this whole thing start? And we already talked about that, because of money. What do we as Christians do in order to deal with the sinful things that go on in our society? Oftentimes we pick it. We want people to stop having abortions, and so we go outside of abortion clinics and we pick it. Or we want people to stop buying pornography and, and frequenting those stores. So what do we do? We pick it, 
and we're hateful and we start riots. Now, we may not see a whole lot of those around here, but they happen. But what Paul did was he taught the word of God and as people's lives were changed, what you'll notice is that those places stopped being frequented. Christians that are giving their lives to serving and following the Lord will not frequent those places anymore. You won't have to tell them, the Lord will convict them. Now, teaching the word of God is the essential part of that. In order to make society better, we oftentimes look to the government or to new laws in order to make changes that keep people from doing things that are contrary to what God's word says. And we want to change their habits. We want to change their morals. We want to stand up and say, why are you doing these things? But the reality is, is they're doing these things because they don't know the Lord. The reality is, is that if we will just surrender our lives to following the Lord, live quiet lives of obedience, if we'll share our faith with the individuals that we get to know, that these places will no longer be frequented. If we would fully surrender. We, like the Christians in Ephesus, have the ability to have a large impact on our society. If we'd only simply allow the Lord to purify our lives and we'd allow him to point out in the spots where we're double-minded. And I say that because the Lord's been doing that in my life this week. See, I work full-time. And I pastor. And those things alone take up quite a bit of time. But I also have a wife. I also have a child. I have responsibilities to my parents to honor them. So the reality is, is I don't have much time to do the things that I want to do, my hobbies, my habits, the things that I really enjoy. But if I will delight myself in the Lord, what I'll find is that the things that I can do to obey the Lord, I can find joy in them. I can serve my wife. I can be there for my daughter. I can pray with them. I can read the word to them. I can honor my parents by just spending some time with them. I can work at my job not because I'm trying to please my boss, but because I'm trying to please the Lord. I can study the Word of God and find joy in getting to know Him better as something He's given me to do so that I can teach the Word of God to other people. And if I will do those things and, and delight myself to do the will of God, what happens is that I'm not so much worried about my free time anymore because the things that God's given me to do are fun. I enjoy them. They give me peace and lasting fulfillment. But what happens is that the Lord gets a hold of our lives and we, like the people of Ephesus, like the silversmiths, we say, Lord, I've given you my whole life. I'm ready to follow you. Now, obviously the silversmiths have not done that. But I think that there's a little bit of a silversmith in me. I think there's a person that has this war. My spirit is willing to follow the Lord, but sometimes my flesh is weak. I don't necessarily make idols, but my time, the, the time that I have in my life is an idol to me. And so the Lord says, I want, to, I want you to use your time doing this. And I go, but what about this? I'm not as getting, my, my, my time pocketbook doesn't have as much in it anymore. What about me, Lord? And what he says is, it's not about you. It's not about your bottom line. It's not about your time. If you have been saved by me, your life is no longer your own. It's been bought at a price. The life that you now live 
is the life that I live through you. So delight yourself to do my will, and I'll give you joy in those things. And then what we find out is when the Lord takes more ground and he, and he delights, he gives us more to delight in, what you'll find is that your flesh, once in a while, even though you want to do the Lord's will, will cry out and go, great is Mike Mingi. Well, you might not say that, but you might say, great is me. Lord, you're taking my life and you're using it for your purposes, but what about me? And what the Lord wants to do in those moments where we start to realize how much we really do love us more than we love Him, is He wants us to surrender once again. He wants us to look at that spot and go, Lord, I really, I really do love myself more than I love you. I do still have idols in my heart, things that I serve that are not for you. He cramps our style so that we'll realize how much we need Him. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul's saying there is that we as Christians still have a riot going on inside of us. And the Lord desires to, once again, take more ground for us. And sometimes when He takes another area of our lives, our flesh cries out, What about me? But if we realize what He has done for us, we won't have any problem giving him that extra area of our life. And so I want to ask you this morning, what are the things that are in your life personally? Ask the Lord to examine your heart. What are the things in your life that are like this Demetrius? What are the things that cry out when the Lord asks you to do something? What are the things that will keep you from serving the Lord? Is it money? Is it time? like I struggle with? Is it, uh, is it family? Is it other obligations that seem more important, like your job? What are the things that keep you from reading the Word? What are the things that keep you from praying? All of those things that kind of press in on us in our daily lives are not meant to keep us from the Lord, but they're meant to cause us to cling more to the Lord. They're wind. Life is kind of like that storm that Jesus was with his disciples in. They were in the boat. They were traveling across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had said to them, let's go to the other side. Let's get in this boat, go to the other side. And when the storm brewed and things start happening, he was sleeping in the bow. And his disciples said, don't you know that we're perishing? We're going to die out here. Now the Lord had already promised them that they were going to go to the other side. And oftentimes we're in the middle of this life and the Lord says, lay down your life and I will give you real life. And we try to pick it back up again. And the reality is, is that he calms the storms, but sometimes he wants us to go through those storms to show that on the other side, the things that 
blew off of us during that storm are really the things that should remain, our faith in Him. So I don't know if any of that made sense this morning. It did when I was studying. But I just want to pray that if there's idols, if there's Dianas, if there's things in your life that cause you to kind of deny the Lord in certain areas of your life, give them to the Lord. Lay them down. Turn to the Lord from those idols. Ask Him, Lord, change me. I see that there's something in me that might cause me to deny you or betray you. So let's pray. Father, thank you.